0: Hello and welcome to the People to People podcast,
1: which in Chichewa is Antu Kwa Antu.
0: My name is Hazel,
1: I'm Chimzi, and in this podcast we're exploring the unique partnership between Scotland and Malawi,
0: unearthing the many layers of partnerships, be it people to people, school to church, government to NGO, farmer to consumer, people to land, wherever there is partnership we are interested. And today we are talking about people and ploughs. We have always said that we are not experts and on this subject of agriculture that is particularly true.
1: Um, I'm not a farmer, I do however have a few plants, um, two are no longer with us, but the rest are thriving which is great to see. It makes me really proud and also my grandparents are farmers, so... but I'm not a farmer. I care for a blackcurrant bush and a plum tree which does not make me a farmer. I think we do need to talk about farming because it's really important in Malawi.
0: Yeah, in this episode, we talk with Scottish journalist Susan Dalgetty. In her book, The Spirit of Malawi, Susan says, Malawi is a nation of farmers. Almost everyone, from the president to the poorest villager, has a plot of land which they cultivate. Agriculture defines Malawi. Here's Susan.
2: And and I don't think anybody has the answer to this. How do you balance economic development with being able to feed people and
0: also with protecting the environment.
1: The two historically important crops in Malawi are tobacco and maize.
0: So maize is under particular threat from climate shocks and pests, and the kind of tobacco that grows well in Malawi is becoming unfashionable. Its burly, robust flavour used in Marlborough and Camel is no longer as popular as the lighter oriental kind.
1: We spoke with Mary Popple, who is the chair of Just Trading Scotland.
3: You know, for, for me, it is really weird when people don't buy (laughs)
0: You know, trade bananas.
3: Why would you go to somewhere else on the shelf when there's trade
0: ones to buy? And we spoke with Joyce Jumapiri, CEO of Fairtrade Scotland.
4: Every time I go to Malawi and I eat a banana, it's like, wow, a banana tastes like a banana.
0: We also spoke to Philip Chidawati from the Malawian-led Crops Project.
5: In Malawi, most of the land is under, it's communal land, so it's controlled by chiefs. Like the farmers that we are, um, we are working with. Um, a few could have maybe two acres, but an average is um, one acre of land.
1: But let's start the conversation by hearing from Luayo Biswick from the Primaculture Paradise Institute of Malawi.
6: My parents used to grow tobacco, not food. Um, so they used to grow tobacco that we couldn't eat. Uh, they wanted to be making a lot of money, but they, we ended up uh, being poor because. Uh, the tobacco they were growing could not give us enough money to buy food, and we needed money to buy fertilizer and the like. In a family of twelve, I was number eight, and it was hard, challenging for our parents to give us all the necessities that we needed as children. So I failed to go to school not because I was I wasn't doing well in class, but because my parents could not manage to pay for the school fees. So I ended up uh, working for people to get food and. Uh, uh, get whatever I needed, daily bread, you know. There was a family in Malawi that was practicing permaculture, a way of farming and living in harmony with nature. I looked at that, this farm and said, why why, why are we going to bed on an empty stomach yet? In this farm, there's plenty of food, not just in one season, but in phases uh, throughout the year. So I just went home and um, implemented what I saw. I was working and I was under somebody's policies. We were not able to reach out to the poorer people in the community. So I sat down with my family, my wife, and said, you know what, uh, why don't we quit job and follow our hearts? I resigned from my work at the age of 30. And we said, you know what, we need to move out of the city and go into the outskirts to live a hard life, the hardest life. And to show people that it is possible to use local available resources and grow food. It is possible to use local available resources to generate income and earn a living.
0: It was a risk that paid off for the while.
6: So we grow plenty of rice. In the first year we started with 0.4 acres. We we worked on one acre and we got 5,000 kilograms of rice. Length of cassava, 10 ridges gives us 1,000 kilograms of cassava, and we sell that at 200,000 and get 1.5 million in, a, in an acre. We get uh, up to 2,500 kilograms of mangoes in two trees. So we get plenty of foods. We've got over 200 foods on the farm.
1: So Luwayo spoke about wanting to reach out to the poorer people in the community. So let's hear from Luwayo about the challenges that farmers in rural Malawi are facing.
6: So a lot of people are cutting down trees to create room for short-term crops, you know. So we are seeing a lot of floods. We are seeing a lot of dry spells and droughts and the like. And now we see a lot of pests, the four Amiwim, eating all of the maize because... You know, there's no genetic diversity, temporal diversity, speech diversity, functional diversity, and space diversity in our fields, you know. If you come to Malawi right now, you'll see this is the time of the year when we get the most of our rains. Unfortunately, that's the time of the year when Malawians go to bed on an empty stomach, because maize from last year is not matured yet. But maize they harvested the previous season has just ended. You know, there's that gap in the time of abundance. But if you go in nature, you go in a forest, you will find plenty of vegetables, plenty of staples, plenty of edible insects, edible caterpillars and the like. So because people are so much focused on maize, that's why you see even the government subsidizing fertilizer, subsidizing seeds, so that we can have a lot of people growing maize. But that's... What is contributing to many of the challenges that Malawi is facing, you talk of poverty. If you're working in Malawi villages, you see a lot of kids with big berries, with small muscles, because they're only fed with maize. There's no diversity in their foods, you know. So agriculture is uh, milking them, taking them, everything. In Malawi, you find horticulturists growing fennel, dill, coriander, kale. All these vegetables are not from the tropics, you know most of these vegetables originated from the temperate so we are taking crops of the temperate and apply them in the tropics and we wonder why they don't do well the thing is we've got our own vegetables that as well already so we need to do studies of our own foods and then we contextualize our horticulture we contextualize our agriculture and we contextualize our life and that way we can sustainably um, inhabit this planet in a way that is ecologically acceptable money profitable as well as social justice.
0: All this has resulted in Lawayo and the Permaculture Paradise Institute creating a quarter acre model and I told someone this and they said surely you mean hectare but no in a small quarter acre Lawayo reckons you can live and grow what you need for your family. Let's hear about it.
6: So we have a quarter acre model to demonstrate a 16 square meter house it's a it's a um that's uh, rammed earth and flushed, and uh, the floor is mud, and we've got a solar defreezer inside it, and a double bed inside it, and a small wardrobe, a composting toilet inside it, and the solar lights. So this is to show people that a 60, 16 square meters is enough space for a family. You've got a shower room where you're growing bananas throughout the year. And then you've got the surrounding of the randaville, you've got space where you're growing vegetables throughout the year. And then you've got a space where you can grow fruit trees, That will be providing shade for for you as acting as natural gazebos, and then we've got a small piece of land where you can grow
0: staples. Hello, I'm Hazel, and I'm Chimsy, and together, in partnership, we're creating the People to People podcast.
1: It's our way of digging deep into all the important things happening between Scots and Malawians.
0: I see what you did there, digging deep. We are also (laughs) cultivating our thoughts. Sowing the seeds of change cross-pollinating our communities
1: well this entire conversation or podcast is like walking through a farmer's field only to find out it's a maze
0: (laughs) that was a good one
1: thank you so we spoke with ivy murray in our people and planet episode about restorative climate justice if you haven't already Please do have a listen to that one. It's a really important episode.
0: Like Lawayo, Evie is talking about diversifying the crops to create more resilient agriculture.
7: Crop diversity is the most important thing because if one crop fails, then you might still get, sort of, you know, ground nuts or, 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 or some other crop. Um, and that, that is really important in terms of climate in, in more extreme weather events that we're likely to be seeing happening. But We're on the precipice of a real crisis and we really need to get things right. You know, for so large monocrops of maize, which are really dependent on lots of water and lots of chemical fertilizer and the huge tillage that goes on in the on the land is, is, is a worry. It's kind of dangerous, really, in terms of creating that resilience that's needed.
1: I love Evie's passion for ensuring we find sustainable solutions. It's,
7: it's insane, really, that we live in a society where people go hungry. I just, it doesn't make sense when there's so much. Um, we're a very smart species. You know, we can solve this if we put our minds to it, I think. Um, I think sometimes we just need to care. You know, food sovereignty first. Then let's look at how we can... Safely export crops around the world because you have to remember that climate change is, you know, carbon footprint of uh, food flying all around the world. We've all got very used to eating different things, but it's, it's not really a sustainable system for selling crops around the world, um, you know, exporting food from Scotland and uh, selling crops from Malawi, that first we should have our priorities right and make sure everybody's fed first. And that's really important, you know, that we're not turning over land for enterprise when people and communities are hungry.
0: Yes, and I think Joyce Jumapiri from Fairtrade Scotland would agree with you, Evie, but she also stressed to us the importance of trade, not aid. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I think that Joyce isn't suggesting that communities aren't fed first, but that farming cycles will mean that at some times of the year there will be an excess and at other times there will be a hunger gap. And when there is an excess, we make sure that Malawian farmers are able to sell at a good price.
4: Malawians are not going to get out of poverty with age. And I'm really, really sorry if I'm going to hurt other people by saying that because... Uh, I don't think any country can develop with it. The type of trade we are doing with African countries, and especially countries like Malawi, where by people are on less than a dollar a day, needs to be needs to be reviewed. If we want really to improve lives in Malawi, we can do that. Malawi, Malawi has got fantastic coffee. Malawi has got fantastic mangoes. Malawi has got fantastic fish. Have you ever had Malawi fish? Chambo? Yeah.
1: Oh, I love chambo. Oh, beautiful.
4: Every time I go to Malawi and I eat a banana, it's like, wow, a banana tastes like a banana. You know? What's happening now is that people are taking a lot of raw products from African countries, Malawi included, and selling them abroad at high prices. That cannot be right. That can be right. Why are we not supporting products that will be Produced and packaged in country. Because in that way, you know, there is value added. You know, the farmer makes a bit of a shilling. You know what I mean? So Joyce Chimapidi
0: is a woman of many talents, isn't she, Chimsi? Oh,
1: yes, she is.
4: I am currently the chairperson of the Association of Malawians in Scotland and also the CEO for Fairtrade Scotland. I work in the community, I'm an asset code. My mother and a grandmother, too. I'm also the social enterprise lead for the Malawi UK business group.
1: Like Lewayo, Joyce grew up on a tobacco farm in Malawi.
4: I'm a farmer's daughter, so I've always been interested in all things to do with farming. I kept asking questions, you know, like a child, probably tired my parents out, you know, why is it that we, we produce a lot but we don't seem to move, you know what I mean? My parents were tobacco farmers, so... That time, tobacco had a lot of money coming to the farmers. Over the years, I've seen that the farming industry, you know, farmers have really, really struggled. So coming to Fair Trade Scotland has given me, you know, a platform to look at what's happening in Malawi with Malawi farmers. I remember when I was young, you know, every summer, my parents would take us to the fields. I absolutely hated it. <laughs> because it's hard work, you know, it was really, really hard. And I'm like, I can't do this at all. My dad used to, like, would we'll give us each an acre and we'll compete on who plants fast and stuff. <laughs> and probably I was the slowest one of them all. <laughs> I would give, like, my friends in the village sweets to, to help me plant my, my wee acre. <laughs> it's just too difficult a job. So you need to go to the fields very early, maybe around three and four. By nine o'clock, the sun is really, really too strong to do anything. And then you return around four, five, six, when the sun is going down to actually get nothing at the end of it.
1: My grandparents are farmers. They always used to say, oh, Chimsy, come and help us. And I used to dread. I didn't go often, but it's so so physically demanding. With growing maize or cassava, It takes so much energy. And if you're told yeah. to spend five hours in the blazing sun, it's, it's just, I always used to say no.
4: You're yeah, like it, you could say no, you know? Yeah. No, um, that is
1: true. Like you said, some people, that is their entire lives.
0: So if you don't go to the, to the fields, you have no food, you know? Hemp of the cannabis family is a really useful plant that you can do lots with, apparently.
1: Mm, okay. Um, so we need to find out a little bit more about that. We asked Joyce about the potential for hemp to replace the tobacco industry in Malawi. And here's what she said.
4: The license and the requirements are quite high. It's about 15 million kwachas. So that's about 50,000 pounds around there. I can see it happening for a small farmer, unless maybe they're part of a cooperative that they'll do those things together quite interested in it because we cannot continue growing tobacco. Tobacco has done a lot of damage and we know that. The way that we can look at how do we ensure then that smallholder farmers have got access to that and they got a, a piece of the cake. The, the danger, as I say, because most farmers don't have resources. So you see a lot of excitement really in theory and in practice, it's one of the big guns with loads of money coming and say, okay, I'm going to buy this Farm and I'm gonna do this, and I have the good access, maybe either to politicians or the markets themselves, which is sad. But we we need to look for a space where smallholder farmers can can take a part in this.
0: Yeah, I think that seems really key. And although I don't know loads about farming, but um, I've been listening recently to conversations about the the intensive farming that we do in Scotland is actually really damaging to the land. We're completely saturated in fertilizer our farming practices are really brutal to the environment using less pesticides and machinery and more concentrating on biodiversity and like using insects and paired planting and that sort of knowledge yeah that perhaps malawian farmers already have that could be their resilience as well right yeah
4: yeah and I think that's really that's the irony of it all, you know, because they don't have money to buy all these pesticides and fertilizers and stuff. Actually, it's a ab- it's blessing because then we have organic food, not produced on mass scale, but that organic food cannot be sustainable to most farmers because of the way we are farming. We can't talk about farming without talking about climate change and the effect on farmers. I I know that it's not the same type of quality of soil we have in most places like we had when I was growing up.
0: I was really struck by Joyce describing the soil quality decreasing. So I wanted her help in trying to get my head around what a sustainable and food secure farming culture would look like. And so mm-hmm. we're needing to encourage people to farm in a way that has lots and lots of different crops and is about feeding their own community number one and then whatever grows well the international market has to adapt to that and they have to fit in with what's available rather than what we want being imposed on the land in Malawi which it can sustain do you know what I mean? Yeah yeah and that's very true I mean when I'm talking about opening
4: the international markets for Malawi farmers I'm not I don't mean that they staff Malawians who are producing the food but because we use traditional methods of farming, right? Not a lot of Malawi smallholder farmers have got access to things like irrigation and uh, new uh, farming tools. So it is very, very difficult for them to plant different crops. We've got cooperatives in Malawi already. You know, we've got NAS farm, uh, you know, the Kassintula farmers, the Mzuzu growers and stuff. How can we enable them and see and evaluate how that process goes so that it can be channeled out i always believe the food security is linked is co- closely linked to economic growth you know stable incomes and reduced risk and vulnerability so that was one of the bases of fair trade uh, some years back in malawi right malawi was able you know for a few years to be food secure still the same malawi hasn't moved somewhere you know that they were able to export the surplus and feed other countries, surely it's been shown that it can be done.
1: Another person that has been very involved with creating fair trade links with Malawi and Scotland is Mary Popple from Just Trade Scotland.
3: Well, I suppose I've I've been involved in fair trade for as long as I can remember. If I'm buying coffee, well, why wouldn't I buy fair trade coffee? And I think it's always been that, why wouldn't I do this? You know, for, for me, it is really weird when people don't buy (laughs) <laughs> you know, fair trade bananas. Why would you go to somewhere else on the shelf when there's fair trade ones to buy?
0: Just Trade Scotland sell rice that they have sourced from small community farmers in Malawi.
3: Because it's an indigenous rice, it it actually can be used for everything. I use white kilombera rice for risottos, and it's wonderful.
1: And they had a very interesting way of selling their rice in communities, making sure that the produce never became separated from the story about where it came from.
3: it had to start from from nowhere so it started with churches and then schools and and part of global citizenship education in schools which you know if a if a school takes a 90 kilogram rice challenge they buy 90 kilograms 90 bags and one kilogram bags of rice sell it to their mums and grannies and aunties and friends and neighbors or whatever and it it's been incredibly successful it 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 was a way of representing what the rice means to people. So 90 kilograms of rice is the amount a farmer, approximately, uh, the amount a farmer would need to sell to send one child to secondary school for one year. But this year, of course, that's just not happened. But what we have happened, which is really interesting, is that when Tesco's and everybody else during uh, the early pandemic, when all the shelves and supermarkets were empty, People start coming to us who hadn't been to us before, and quite a few of them, they're still coming to us. People are looking more at where their food's coming from, and they're thinking climate, and they're thinking um, ethics.
0: So, we heard a story about how Just Trade Scotland had been working in partnership with their farmers to ease the laborious task of collecting firewood. And
3: women, the women rice farmers have traditionally, um, and it's only the women, every three or four days, walked up into the hills with their small children on their backs and got firewood, brought it back. And that is one of their really arduous tasks. Um, at the same time, rice is milled and the husks from the rice or the husks are uh, discarded. And actually you can make a, a fuel briquette from the rice husks.
0: Mary told us that it was decided that there would be a briquette maker in the mill.
3: And I asked Grace, does that help you? And she said, no, because they live a long way from the mill. They don't have transport, so it doesn't help them in the now issue and in always the, the, always the, the hard issue of getting, of getting firewood to cook their meals with. So she put together, well, could they do it elsewhere so if we're, we're in the process of raising money for two groups of women farmers out in the country to build a shed buy a briquette maker and get the education to be able to run that as two small businesses now isn't
0: that brilliant hello i'm hazel and I'm Chimsy. And together, in partnership, we're creating the People to People podcast.
1: It's our way of digging deep into all the important things happening between Scots and Malawians. Uh, here's one. What do you call a maze problem? What? A conflict. <laughs> <laughs> is that a bit corny? That, you know, that is very corny.
0: And now we welcome to the podcast, Susan Dalgetty.
1: Susan Dalgetty has enjoyed a varied career in journalism and politics and has worked on a range of governance projects in Malawi since 2005. She is also a trustee for the Scotland-Malawi Partnership
0: and recently published a book called The Spirit of Malawi.
2: Doing farming at a large scale, that you need to do it if you're going to make lots of uh, export income out of it. Is quite challenging. If, you, if you're a family, mum and dad, five children, and they live in rural Malawi, the only way that you eat and earn enough money to you know, buy soap and salt and the essentials of life is by growing your own food. But if everybody stays at that subsistence farming level, then the country will always be a low-income country. And and I don't think anybody has the answer to this. How do you balance economic development with being able to feed people, and also with protecting the environment? And I I don't have the answer to that,
0: Susan. I was really hoping that you would. Ask <laughs> I know. That how In the last how Thursday we be... asked everybody else. <laughs> well how
2: how it happened here was there was an agriculture revolution and basically rich people through poor people off the land so we went through an agriculture revolution and then we went through an industrial revolution the challenge for malawi is how you how you develop an economy and an education system that allows of the population to achieve their potential. The global economy doesn't care about small countries, really. Climate change is a huge barrier. And you're also having to deal with humanitarian crises. Health, I mean, malaria is much worse in many ways than COVID. President Chikwera and VP... Chilema, I think, have one of the most difficult jobs in the world. The world is very rich, if you you take in its totality. If countries like America, China, and the UK, Europe, invested properly and in a coherent, cohesive way in infrastructure for sub-Saharan Africa, rail, Road, water, broadband, to almost kickstart uh, economic development, then that would make a huge difference. But everything's done, most things are done in a piecemeal way. Biden can't even get his infrastructure bill for America through Congress. So the idea of, of, of bringing together all the G7 countries to invest Seriously, an infrastructure for sub-Saharan Africa. I think it's probably too late. So what, so what rich countries do is they send humanitarian aid, which when humanitarian aid is required, that's absolutely the right thing to do. But the people of Malawi don't want to get handouts all the time. They want to develop their own economy.
0: I also think there's an empathy issue from Western point of view whereby you, the most sensitive of us who are more likely to tune in kind of panic when we see starving children and that it's impossible to get past that. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah.
0: Give everybody their breakfast first before we start building a road. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good way
2: of putting it. But if the road was built and there was a bridge over the little river, then it would be a lot easier to take your maize to the maize mill so you could get it ground into flour, so then you
0: could feed your children. So much going on in this episode. We have just got time to squeeze in one more voice. We spoke to Philip Chidawati from the Malawian-led Crops Project.
1: Did you like speaking to Philip? I did. He was very smiley. He was Um... very smiley. Yeah, uh, I really
7: like that.
5: In Malawi, most of the land is under, it's communal land. So it's controlled by chiefs. Like the farmers that we um, we are working with, um, a few could have maybe two acres, but an average is um, one acre of land. Some will do what we call intercropping. So they would mix, for example, maize with beans to maximize the use of land. There are some some crops which you cannot intercrop, uh, like rice.
1: The Malawian-led crops project, with support from the Challenges Group in Edinburgh and Malawi, is working with approximately 10,000 Malawians in Kotakota, Kota, Salima, Machinga and Tichikawa communities where the aim is to help increase household incomes of rural farmers in the four districts by 10% by 2023. And they've been doing an incredible job exceeding targets pre-COVID. The Crops Intervention is a holistic one-stop shop support for local farmers. Um, this pulls together Malawian knowledge and that from elsewhere on what best to grow, how, processing crops, and and most importantly, support on how and to whom to sell produce.
5: The government of Malawi implemented a very huge project which was funded by African Development Bank to a tune of about 45 million USD from, from 2013 to 2017. One of the outputs was the construction of value addition centres in seven districts in Malawi. Because the validation centers were huge buildings and uh, they had installed um, processing machines in those buildings to be used by farmer cooperatives. When the project was finishing, the validation centers were not functional. So that's how the CROPS project came in. So, so we're looking at the main issues that made the farmers fail to, to operationalize the, the validation centers. One, there was... Um, Low crop productivity. The the, the cooperatives had little cooperative management skills. Okay, so there was poor governance, um, poor financial management, uh, poor leadership. You know, so we we came in to to build on that, but also they didn't have um, adequate capital. So issues of um, access to finance. We have also been doing a lot of trainings on financial literacy for the general membership so that farmers understand how they can plan um, and budget or utilize their incomes after crop sales. We would like to encourage a lot of uh, startup businesses within the validation centers. So for example, we had identified um, some entrepreneurs to do businesses in organic manure making. Okay. This guy is making um, money through uh, organic manure making, but he's assisting the fellow farmers to, to use organic manure, which is much better in improving the soil health as compared to inorganic fertilizers. This is a combination of animal manure and um, crop residues. Cooperatives are not new in Malawi. They started a uh, long time ago, maybe Four decades ago, because the, the cooperative should run as a business. And therefore, what we found at that time was that these cooperatives didn't have clear revenue mobilization streams that they would use to get money, to spend on operations, and also increase their income, increase um, farmer shares through dividends and other things. I think the issue that is um, still outstanding although we, we made some good strides on it, is access to finance. These groups, although we are building their investment readiness, they still fall outside the risk acceptance criteria by commercial banks. We had learned the, the four validation centers that we are supporting. Uh, some capital to a tune of thirty-five thousand pounds. We came up with a very simple way of assessing the, the, the institutions to, to design an in-house credit facility that helped these cooperatives to access financing, which was used to aggregate more crops for processing. That resulted in the cooperatives selling their um, uh, products the whole year round.
0: And what do you have you learned about good partnership and the values of particularly like international partnerships so Scotland working with Malawi when does that work well and when does that not work so well? (sighs) Honestly, we don't (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. International partnerships
5: yeah, so in terms of international partnerships, like uh, where it doesn't really work I think to do with the understanding of the local context Sometimes international partners would think, this works in UK, you can also work in Malawi. Uh, Another good thing with international partnership maybe is is now the financial support, to be honest. Without this project, these validation centres wouldn't be operational up to now.
1: We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Please do follow us and tell a friend about us podcasts tend to grow when people recommend them to their friends so we would love for you to spread the word
0: about us yes we are looking for a second season but we need to build our audience so every person that you recommend we're very grateful to you our email is people to people pod at gmail.com let's continue the conversation in this
1: episode, you heard from Ivie Murray, Luaya Biswick, Mary Popple, Philip Chidawati, Susan Delgetti, and Joyce Jumapiri. It was produced and presented by Hazel Darwin Clements and me, Chimsy Dory. And today, we'll let Lazarus play us out. <laughs>
8: And if Am I You Waited up, giving you what you did. Did you feel it all? It's a waiter, a Batuwa ife, si bati gola basi ife kumamba, Benuga ni a little bit of 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 a it sounded so good.